Our Father, we thank You for this passage. This passage, as did David's psalm that we read earlier, just resonate with us. This, this seems to be the wrestling of our hearts and souls. This is our longing. This is our godly frustration, our godly anxiety, as it were. And, oh, Father, as we consider this passage today and in the weeks ahead, would you, would you give us encouragement from it? Would you give us hope in it? Would you give us transformation from it? For our Father, our hearts do need transformation. And so we, we come every week, we gather every week, we worship every week, we open this book every week. And Father, would you, would you not make us complacent with this book and this time? But Father, might, might this hour ahead be transformative to us, hopeful, and life-changing. Might, might this be a day when real significant change begins to happen in our lives? And would you do it through this word? And so would you give us receptivity to hear? And would you give me accuracy and clarity as I preach? In the name of Christ I pray. Amen. For years, the bumper sticker and slogan, Visualize World Peace, has both been affirmed and mocked. In all honesty, whenever I see the bumper sticker that's a takeoff of that, Visualize World Peace, I always snicker and always grin. But we want peace, don't we? And while people want peace, war is a reality in the world in which we live. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that historians have compiled lists of all known wars since 3600 B.C. and have documented that of those years since 3600 B.C., only 292 years have been war-free worldwide. And during those 5600 years, there have been over 14,300 wars with a documented at least three and two-thirds billion people killed by those wars. Additionally, since, since 650 B.C., there have been a documented 1,650 arms races. And of those 1,650 arms races, only 16 have not ended in war. That's not a very good track record. We want peace, but war is a reality. And when a sinner comes to trust in Jesus Christ, he similarly often yearns for peace from sins and, and finds that in very similar ways, his battle with sin actually increases. He wants the sin to go away, but it seems that the sin is even more abundant. The fight is harder and longer and deeper than he ever anticipated it would be or could be. We want to assert the, the motto, visualize spiritual peace. And we want to visualize a, a life free from temptation and sin. But it seemingly doesn't exist. While a believer in Jesus Christ has been set free from sin, we've seen that in Romans 5 and Romans 6, and the believer in, in Christ no longer has to sin, that does not mean that the believer in Christ will not sin. It doesn't mean that the believer will not struggle with sin. The believer in Jesus Christ is not free from all temptation and all struggle from sin, though we would like to be. And consider just a couple of examples. Our, our Savior Jesus Christ, who, while He was on earth, faced the same kind of temptations that we did, yet without sin. So Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He has been tempted in all things, in all kinds of things as we are. The same kinds of temptations that are given to us were given to Jesus Christ. In fact, Satan unleashed all of the fury of hell against him. 
Certainly for those 40 days while he was in the wilderness, Satan was unleashing every temptation, every kind of guile, every kind of manipulation against Jesus Christ in an attempt to to get him to fall into sin. And certainly not just during those 40 days, but all through the ministry of Jesus Christ, Satan would have been trying to interject himself in numerous kinds of ways to, to lead Jesus Christ away and commit even just one sin. That was his goal. And if our Savior faced a lifetime of temptation, how can we assume that we, because we are in Him, have a right not to face temptation and not to face sin? There's a second consideration as well. Consider, for instance, the example of the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves remind us of, of the propensity of people to sin, and even implies and even at times states that we are susceptible to sin and that the flesh will always remain with us while we are on earth. In fact, you're you're in Romans chapter 7. Just turn back one page or perhaps two in your Bible to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 12, Romans chapter 6, verse 12. This is in the middle of the section. You've You've been moved from Adam to Christ you're no longer in sin. You're no longer in death. You're, you're in life and you are in righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ. You've been transferred to a new kingdom. You have a new authority, a new Lord, a new master. Verse 12, in the middle of that section, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Why would he say that? He says, don't let sin reign because there's a possibility that sin might reign. In fact, he's going to carry that idea further in verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. Why would he say that? Because there is a possibility that even with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, you might present your body as an instrument to unrighteousness. But he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin will not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There's a a possibility that you could go back and fall back into those previous patterns. And Paul is warning his readers, you are are in Christ, you've been moved to a new kingdom, but, but don't go back to those previous patterns and do not let sin reign. And that means there is, there is, a possibility that you might let sin reign in your life. So the struggle against sin is real. And that is the focus of the passage this morning. This is one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament, if not in Romans. And it is, in fact, also one of the most debated passages in the book of Romans and perhaps even in the New Testament. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we look at this passage If we're going to summarize what the Apostle Paul is saying in verses 14 to 25, let's summarize it this way. The believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. The believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. That's that's what we have. Even though we have been moved from death to life, even though we're out of Adam in Christ, even even though sin is no longer our master and Jesus Christ is our master, still we have remaining sin that is our perpetual battle. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want to help us identify a couple of things about this passage. First of all, I want to ask a question that on the surface might, be, might, might seem simple or obvious, but it is uh, the question that has led to much debate about this passage, and that is, when Paul says, I, what does he mean? Now, like I said, that seems obvious, Um, But it is a matter of great debate. So what does Paul mean when he says, I, for instance, verse 14, I am of the flesh? And then secondly, there are are at least two laments in this passage. Some people see three. I'm inclined to see two. And I want to look with you this morning at the first of those laments and then the next of those laments next week along with the hope that is to be found and the reality that is to be found in the spiritual life. So the believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. So how are we to understand this passage and what Paul says about remaining sin? And and just to give you a, a broad context, we want to answer the question, when Paul says, I, is he talking about a believer or is Paul talking about an unbeliever? Uh, th- this is... Um, 
this is a, 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 a topic of great debate. I have in my library a, a book that's uh, 225 or 250 pages that is, that is just trying to answer this single question. Th- does Paul mean himself or does Paul mean somebody else? And if he means himself, what does he mean about himself? There, there are, as we look at this passage, three main possibilities about um, who Paul is talking about. He can be talking about himself before he came to trust in Jesus Christ. And by extension, he can be talking about all people before they come to Jesus Christ. So this is, this is the unbeliever before he is trusted. Or he could be talking about himself after he has trusted in Jesus Christ. Um, and by extension, not just himself, but all believers after they have ta- trusted in Jesus Christ. Or he could be talking not about a believer or an unbeliever particularly, but he is talking simply about one who has been condemned by the law. So one who is unable to keep the law and is judged by the law. Those are the three main possibilities. And oh, that it would only end there. There are, in fact, more subsets of each of those. For instance, if Paul is an unbeliever, what kind of unbeliever is he? Is he the kind of unbeliever that is radically opposed to God, who is completely disinterested in God, rebellious against God, and doesn't want anything to do with God? Or is he someone who is moralistic, we might call him a theist, who is moving towards God, has an interest in God, has an interest in doing righteous things, um, but has not crossed over yet into spiritual life through Jesus Christ? He could be talking about himself as a believer, but what kind of believer is he? Is he someone who is deeply immature so that the picture that he paints for us in verses 14 to 25 is not at all normative. It is by far the exception. This is the person who is immature, doesn't, has come to trust in Christ and has, has believed in Jesus Christ for his salvation, but he just really hasn't ever grown. And frankly, he doesn't have a lot of interest in growing. Um, but he is a believer in Jesus Christ or Is this a believer in Jesus Christ who is mature, maybe even someone of the stature of the Apostle Paul, an apostle still having these wrestlings and longings with sin? And in all honesty, I came to this passage thinking, well, this is going to be pretty clear cut. I had my reasons for thinking what I did about who this was. And as I opened up that one particular book and as I read my commentaries, I I have a a crazy number of commentaries on the book of Romans. I can't possibly read every one of them every week. But this week, I normally read somewhere between 12 and 20 on a given week, on a given passage. That wasn't happening this week because all of them were writing at least five to ten pages just on this one topic. And so I found myself just kind of reduced to holding on to the guys that I think are the key commentators on this passage Um, And there is no agreement among them. In fact, probably my favorite commentator on this passage, I am going in in opposition to him. And I do so with a great, uh, with some measure of of trepidation. Uh, But I I say that simply to say that there is not, I thought there was, but there is not a really clear-cut answer. There There are good reasons for and good reasons against each of these positions. They all have problems. And so don't, don't make this a test of orthodoxy. Don't say, oh, well, I think it's a believer and you think it's an unbeliever. You're a heretic. Don't, don't, don't go there. Uh, this, this isn't one of those kinds of passages. There is, in fact, hope uh, for every person, regardless of how you see this as an unbeliever or as a believer. And just for the sake of simplicity, I want to help you think through what Paul is talking about here. I kind of funneled it down in my simple brain. This is about all I could handle to two primary positions. Is Paul talking about an unbeliever or is he talking about a believer? Those are the two primary and simplest ways to think about it. Paul might be talking about an unbeliever. Paul might be talking about an unbeliever. There are many things in this passage that Paul says about his condition that are completely contrary or seem to be completely contrary to what he has just said a believer is in chapter 6. Just start, for instance, in verse 14. He says, I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. It's not just that I'm sold to sin, Paul says, but he actually says I am sold under sin. 
And by saying under, what he means is that there is a sense in which sin is still over top of him. Sin still rules him. Sin still reigns over him. Sin is still his master. And my friends, that is not indicative of a believer in Jesus Christ. Just turn back a page or two to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, sin reigns. Sin is the master. When we are in Adam... When we have not been redeemed, sin is our master. And if sin is our master, we are underneath it. And when grace comes and Christ becomes our master, then we are underneath him. And being underneath him, we are no longer under sin. In fact, Paul takes this very same phrase, under sin, and he uses it in chapter 3. Remember, chapter 3 is in the middle of that section on depravity and demonstrating that all men are sinners and born as sinners, and no one is righteous on his own. And he says this in verse 9, chapter 3, speaking about, about the nation of Israel and the Jews. He asks the question, what then? Are we, gent- are, are we uh, uh, better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, every unbeliever is underneath sin. Every unbeliever is mastered by sin, ruled by sin, dominated by sin, controlled by sin. And the implication is when you come to Christ, that all changes. So when Paul says in chapter 7, verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin, it seems very clearly to be indicating this is talking about his unbelieving state. This is Paul before he came to know Christ as his Savior. Notice um, also what he says in verse 17, I am no longer the one doing it, when I sin, but sin which dwells in me. So again, he seems to be talking about the rulership and authority of sin, that sin has come into his life, sin is still in his life, a part of his life, controlling his life. And if that's not enough, notice what he says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me. That that sounds like depravity talk, doesn't it? That, that sounds like there is no one righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after good. There's none who seeks after God. There is none who desires Him. There's none who is righteous. We're all born under sin in wages and suffering the wages and consequences of sin. This is, this is the one who is apart from Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, notice verse 21. I find then that the principle of evil is present in me. I look in me and I see evil. That's me. And and in fact, verse 23, I, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Does that sound like a believer? A believer who has been set free from sin. A believer who has been set free from Adam. A believer who has been set free from the domination of sin and death and placed in Christ. Does, does it sound like a believer when he says, I am a prisoner of the law of Christ. I'm imprisoned by the law of sin which is in my members. And then he says in verse 24, wretched Man that I am. (laughs) I'm a wretched, despicable, despisable person. And then he says in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like he's just building this case, isn't it? That, That he's in such a bad place because of his unbelief. And what will he do to change? And Christ comes. 
And Christ interjects. And so, verses 14 to 24, this is an unbeliever who is, is in, in, in Adam, not in Christ, and Christ is interjected and saves the day, literally. And so he says in verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was in condemnation, chapter 7. Now I'm not in condemnation, chapter 8. In fact, in chapter 8, he will 18, excuse me, 19 times directly refer to the Holy Spirit. So he will mention the Holy Spirit by name 19 times in chapter 8. In chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, he mentions the Holy Spirit directly by name exactly zero times. And it is as if the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what life is like without the Spirit of God, and this is what life is like by the Spirit of God. And so there is a, there is a compelling reason to believe that when Paul says, um, this is me, he's talking about himself before he came to Jesus Christ. And, and similarly, before we came to Jesus Christ, we were in the very same kinds of positions. It, it is, in all honesty, a very compelling case. But that's not the only option. There is another option, multiple options actually, but a second one I want to think with you about. Paul might be thinking about an unbeliever. He also might be thinking about a believer. It could be that that Paul is thinking not about himself in the unbelieving state, but, but about himself in the believing state. And, and what are the reasons for that? Well, a number of reasons. For instance, Paul, Paul uses the present tense throughout this passage uh, very particularly and throughout the passage. So, for instance, he says in verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Not I was of the flesh, not I will be of the flesh, but I am, present tense, right now, this is my condition. I am of the flesh. And, and that's just consistent throughout this passage. Paul's talking about his present state. Now, the Greek verb can, does have some fluidity to it, and the present tense can sometimes mean something from the past, and it can sometimes mean something in the future. But, but by and large, just take it at its face value, and that seems to make the most sense in this passage. Just simply take it that Paul is talking about his present condition, I am. What's also interesting in this particular passage is Paul's use of the personal pronoun, I. Verse 14, I am of the flesh. Verse 15, I am doing what I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And we just find Paul using this pronoun, I, all the way through this passage. In fact, verses 14 to 25, 18 times he uses the pronoun, I. And, um, and that's particularly interesting because in the Greek, the, the Greek verb functions a little bit differently than in the English verb. So I might say to you, went to the store. And you would say, um, Terry, I appreciate that, but that's, um, that's really not very helpful. Who went to the store? You have, a, a, you have a, a verb and you have a complement, but you don't have a subject. And you need to tell us what the subject is. is are you saying, I went to the store? Are you saying, you went to the store? Are you saying, he went to the store? Um, but that's not necessary in the Greek. In the Greek, the pronoun is built into the verb. So just the very structure of the verb itself tells us whether we, whether the, the writer or the speaker is saying I, you, or he. But then Paul, and other biblical writers do this as well, wants to particularly emphasize that it is me. And so 18 times in this passage, he adds a pronoun. He doesn't need to add the pronoun. It's built into the verb. But he adds the pronoun, I, 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 I am in this condition. It's, it's Paul saying, it's me. This is me. This is my situation. This is my circumstance. Notice also that, that what Paul says about himself in the middle of that circumstance, for instance, uh, Verse 15, he says that he hates the sin that he does. I am doing the very thing that I hate. And not only does he hate the sin, but notice verse 19, he says, I, I, the good that I want, I do not do. In other words, I, I desire to do good. I desire to, to do something that is pleasing to God. 
And, and friends, that is not the state of the natural man. The natural man doesn't hate sin and the natural man doesn't desire to do God-pleasing things. In fact, we, we find that through, throughout this passage that, that the Apostle Paul consistently talks in this passage about a changed will and changed desires. For instance, in verse 16, he uses a word for willing or wishing or wanting. Verse 16, I do the very thing I do not want to do. So sin is something I do not want. I do not wish it on myself. I do not will it for myself. I do not design it for myself. And he takes that same word for for willing or wanting or desiring. He uses it again in verse 18. Uh, The willing is present in me. I have a right desire to do the right thing, but the doing of the good is not. In verse 19, the, the good that I want... The good that I desire to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And so there in that verse, he uses that that word for willing or wishing twice. Verse 20, I'm doing the very thing I do not want. I have a will, I have a, a wish, I have a desire, and that's changed from what I was before Christ, and now I have a desire to honor and exalt Jesus Christ in what I do. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants who has this will, this wish, this desire to do good. And again, friends, this is, this is, this is talk of transformation. This is the kind of talk that only a transformed person wants. An untransformed, an unchanged person, an unbeliever never talks this way. Now, they may not want the consequences of sin. They may not want the difficulties and the complications that come with sin. They may not want the bad habits of sin so that they can present themselves as being morally upright before the world, but they do not desire to please God in the inner man. And in fact, that is the very thing that Paul says, verse 22. Notice he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. This is, this is my new desire. I have a new longing, a new change, a new desire to please and exalt God and to live for Him. Only the man in Christ wants to do good and only the righteous man delights in the law of God. The unrighteous man does not delight in the law of God. Notice also, he says in verse 17, that sin dwells in him. And he's very careful to use language that says, sin is dwelling in me. He is not saying that he is dwelling in sin. He's using very different language than being in Adam or ruled by Adam or ruled by sin, but he is simply noting that that even while he is living and even while he is in Christ, there is still remaining sin that needs to be eradicated from his life. And notice, it is true, as those who think this, this is an unbeliever, it is true that he exalts in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is true that he points to him and says, I do want Jesus Christ. I am grateful for Jesus Christ and his salvation. But notice what he does immediately after that, verse 25. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. And he's right back to this whole debate that he's been having about the relationship between what he desires to do and what he is actually doing and his struggle with remaining sin. And, and, and because of that, because of all these reasons, and because fundamentally of the transformed and changed desires, I think that while, Paul, while, while it is possible that Paul is talking about unbeliever, I am convinced that he's talking about someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. This is... This is the battle that every believer in Jesus Christ has. He has taken us and He has moved us out of sin. He's placed us in Himself. He's changed our desires. But until we get to glory, all that stuff isn't removed yet. And we still wrestle day by day with the carrying out of sin in the flesh. This, um, we might even say, this section is talking about a believer's godly anxiety. This is his wrestling. He has this tension within him. He is saved by Christ. He is in Christ. He wants to follow after Christ. But he does so imperfectly. 
Now, even as I say that, I, I think there's a, another thing we need to note as we look at that. Um, Paul could be talking about an unbeliever. I am convinced he's talking about a believer. But there's also a sense in which Paul is talking about an inability of the law. He's talking about an inability of the law. In fact, one commentator, in fact, that favorite commentator I was talking about a moment ago, has suggested that figuring out what Paul means by I is really immaterial that you don't even need to know because the whole tenor of the passage is to show the inability of the law to save or sanctify anyone. No one comes to Christ, no one is saved by Christ, no one is changed by Christ by some kind of moralistic keeping of the law. You can't do it. There's not enough righteousness in you to make you spiritual. So the law is good, and we see that in in the number of places. For instance, verse 22, he says, I joyfully confer with the law of God. It's God's law. And if it's God's law, by definition, it must be good. And in fact, he says it is it is from God. It is spiritual. It comes by His Spirit. That's verse 14. And it is also, he says in verse 16, it is good. And that echoes what he has said in verse 12. It's holy, righteous, and good. So this law that comes to us, it is a good law, but it is a law that is incapable of saving us by our keeping of it. You can't keep it and be saved, and you can't keep it and become sanctified. In fact, by this law, the law's primary function, we saw this a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago actually, beginning part of chapter 5, verses 5 and 8, The primary function of the law is to reveal sin. It is by the law that we come to know what sin is, to identify it, and recognize this sin is in us, and we can't save ourselves or be sanctified. And so when Paul says, verse 24, um, verse 23, that he is a prisoner of the law, he simply means that he he can't fulfill it. He can't keep it. He can't, he can't by some achievement of the law either save or sanctify himself. The law is not a means of salvation. The law is not a means of sanctification. It will never release anyone from any kind of bondage. What's Paul's point? If, if anyone's going to be released from the tyranny of sin, you need an alien righteousness. You need a righteousness that's not inside of you because you don't have enough. You need a righteousness that's outside of you, that comes into you and eradicates the penalty of sin and eradicates the power of sin so that that alien righteousness is what changes you. And guess what happened? That alien righteousness came to us, verse 25, from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ came. I can't fulfill the law, but Christ can. And Christ did fulfill the law, kept it in every aspect, every detail of its commandments. He fulfilled it in its entirety. And that righteousness that Christ accomplished is then imputed to us who believe in Him. So we can't save ourselves. That's the point of this passage. We can't save ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves by the law or apart from the law. We need someone else. That's Jesus Christ. So that's... That's the context, if you will. That's the introduction. Now let's move to the message. Verse 14. And I find here two laments. This morning I want to just consider with you the first of those laments. Verse 14. The believer's lament. The believer's longing. The believer's desire. The believer's grief. The believer's sorrow. And what is that? Verses 14 to 17. I do what I hate. The very thing that I don't want to do, that's the very thing that I do. I do what I hate. The believer's lament, I do what I hate. And um, typically I come up completely with my own outline, but as I made my way through this passage, I found John MacArthur's outline to be particularly helpful. So um, I adapted it somewhat, but by and large what we're going to find from verses 14 to 17 is following his outline of the passage um, including the first thing that we find here in verse 14, and that is the believer's condition. So the believer has a lament, the believer has a longing, the believer has a sorrow and a grief, and it comes from his condition. That's verse 14. What is his condition? Notice what he says in verse 14. We know, he says, that the law is spiritual. 
He means that the law is caused by and given by the Spirit and is like the Spirit. It is simply a way for Paul to say the law is God-given. Just, just as we would say from, from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God, it is spirated, it is breathed out by God, it is spoken by God, it is decreed and commanded by God. In the same way, Paul is saying here, the law comes from God. It's, it's breathed out by God, it's spoken by God, it's, it's commanded by God. It originates in God. It is a God-given word. But notice, he says, this is the law. The law is spiritual. The law, the law is from God because it's from God. It's from His Spirit, and it looks like Him. But then he says of himself, I am, but I am of flesh sold under sin. I am of, I am of flesh. That, that word flesh is, um, we would think, a, a common word, and it, it, it might refer to uh, body and humanness and fleshliness. Just, you know, I have a human body. These are real fingers and this is a real nose and we have bodies. Um, and, and it's used sometimes in that way. But, but this particular word actually is only used three other times in the New Testament. And one other time, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to denote a lack of spirituality. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And that word flesh there in 1 Corinthians 3.1, I believe, is the word that is translated by the King James, carnal. I am carnal. I am of carnality. Um, I am not like Christ. And Paul here is simply saying, this is, this is my condition, I am not fully, completely, spiritually mature. There is still a measure of unspirituality in me. When I compare myself with the law of God, which sets the standard of morality, of perfection, I am far beneath that. I do not attain. I cannot attain. I am, in a sense, unspiritual. Calvin said of this verse, Paul is depicting in his own person the character and weakness of believers. And that is us, isn't it? You open the, open the scriptures. How many times a week do you open the scriptures and you read something and you say, Oh, God, work that in me because that's not me. I'm not there yet. I haven't achieved yet. Here's the standard that you have set and I'm way down here. And I want to be up and I want to be exalted in my living and I want to be like Jesus Christ. And would you accomplish that in me and through me? It's not just though... Notice verse 14, it's not just that I am of flesh in contrast to the Spirit, but also he says I am sold under sin. We've already noted that he means by that to be under the power of sin. This is, this is taught kind of like an unbeliever. And, and frankly, as I looked at this passage, for me this was, this was, this was the hurdle to get over. Because this is such a strong statement and it is used so clearly about the unbelieving state, um, I had to think long and hard about how Paul might have been using it not to refer to an unbeliever but to be used to a believer. How can we say that a believer is under sin? Because everything that Paul has said from 5.12 to the end of chapter 6 would say the seemingly say the exact opposite. That we are not under sin. So how can he say that, that we are under sin? Well, he, he says that we can be under sin in, in a couple of ways. One, sin still resides in the believer. So that everyone would agree that, that every believer, even once they've been transformed by Jesus Christ, Christ is their Lord, Christ is their Master, out of Adam, in Christ, every believer still has remaining sin. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 12 of chapter 6. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't do it. You might have a possibility. You might you might go back. But don't do that. We, we, when we talked about that passage in the middle of chapter 6, we noted that when we are moved from, from Adam to Christ, we get a new master and a new Lord. It's like, it's like we have been working under the, the slavery and in the field of the master Satan and sin. And we, when we have trusted in Christ, we, we send our, um, our resignation notice, as it were, to sin. 
and we say, I have a new master and I'm going to live for that master, Jesus Christ. But every once in a while, when we're working in the field for Jesus Christ, we look at that field that we used to work in and live for and say, you know, there's something about that's appealing. And we go back over there and we live over there for a while. Then we say, wait, 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 what am I doing? I'm not here anymore. That's not my master. And we come back to Christ. In a similar way, we, we, we live as if under sin, we still live as if controlled by sin, but, but sin is no longer our master. We still, though, have indwelling sin. There's a, another sense in which we still have, um, we still are underneath sin, and that is that we are still subject to the ultimate effect of sin, and that is death. So, chapter 8, verse 23, Paul says, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruit of the spirits, even ourselves, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. How many of you have said, I am, I am so ready to be done with this body and this flesh and this sin? Um, we all have, haven't we? That, that's the longing. And, and the fact is we long for that because there is a sense in which sin is still over us because we're all going to have to walk through that pathway of death. We're all still going to have to traverse death to get into eternity and be redeemed. And there's also a sense in which um, John the Apostle, not only, Peter, not only Paul, but John the Apostle also affirms that there still is remaining sin for instance, he says in 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You say you have no sin? Liar! You're lying. You have sin. And in fact, it's even worse than you're a liar if we say, verse 10 of 1 John 1, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. If we say we're not sinners... <laughs> We're liars and we make God out to be a liar. Yes, we have remaining sin. We are saved. Christ is our righteousness. God sees us as being righteous in Jesus Christ. But there still is a completion to our salvation that is still in the future. We are not done yet. And so Paul's strong words about his condition do not indicate that he was partially saved that he was kind of saved, that he was 99% in Christ and 1% in Adam, 99% freed from sin, 1% still controlled by sin. No, he is completely in Christ. Christ is his Lord. Christ is his Master. But he still has remaining sin. The believer's battle with sin, says one writer, is strenuous and lifelong. I like the way S. Lewis Johnson says it, he is talking here about the partial bondage of an imperfectly sanctified man, not the total bondage of an unsaved man. I find that helpful. He's talking about partial bondage of an imperfectly sanctified man, not the total bondage of an unsaved man. Now, some people will say, this can't be a believer Believers don't talk like this. Believers, believers don't talk about being of the flesh and sold into sin. And believers don't talk about being prisoners of sin. And believers don't talk about being wretched. Really? I do. I've had to confess to my wife. I've had to confess to my children. And I've, this might be shocking to you. I've had to confess to my wife and children the same sin more than once. And what do I say when I go to her and I say, will you forgive me for? And it's the same sin. And in 31 years of marriage, I might have committed that sin against her. Well, let's see. It's more than 31 times. It's more than once a year. What do I say? I say, I'm a fool. I'm despicable. I'm wretched. I talk like that, don't you? I know you do. Some of you have said, Terry, I am, I am so sick of my sin. I just despise it. And I hate that I'm back here again, struggling with the same thing again. I hate it. But 
it's not just me and not just you that talks that way. The scripture writers talk that way. Consider Job, the most righteous man on earth. And what does he say when he is confronted by God? Job 42. Job 42, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself. That, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like wretched man that I am. Isn't that the same? It wasn't just Job, it was David. David, a man after God's own heart. But he says of himself, Psalm 51, you know this psalm, For I know my transgressions and my sin every once in a while is in front of me. And what does he say? My sin is ever before me. I look up and all I see is my sin. I just see the pervasiveness of sin in my life. Daniel was a man of remarkable integrity. He was one of the few men in Scripture of which we don't have a recorded sin. Now, we know he's a sinner because he's a man, but there's nothing in Daniel's life to say, that was a sin, that was clear-cut, that was sin, that was wrong. One of the few men in Scripture that way, a man of remarkable integrity. But listen to what he says in his prayer, Daniel 9. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord. Not them. Us. We. Me. Isaiah was a prophet, a righteous prophet in an unrighteous time in Israel, and when he saw the holiness of God, he cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, a righteous man, but he's ruined when he sees the exalted Savior and God. And Jesus' most beloved disciple is the the Apostle John. There's the twelve, right, of all the masses of people that follow Jesus. There are the twelve. And of the twelve, there are three, Peter, James, and John. And of the three, there's one, the beloved disciple, John. John sees the exalted Christ in heaven in his vision in Revelation chapter 1. And he says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This This is the disciple that was most loved by Christ, most beloved of Christ, most intimate with Christ. And when he saw him exalted, he says, I'm dead because of my sin. You know, this is is the way all of us talk. This is the way the scripture writers talk. This is the way we talk. This This is what we are. This is our condition that we have remaining sin. Is there any proof that we have remaining sin? The proof is given to us in verses 15 and 16. The condition of the believer, he has remaining sin. The the proof of the condition is given to us in verses 15 and 16. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Paul uses the word here, understanding. It means, means knowledge. It's typically translated knowledge. And so it seems to be reading, what I'm doing, I do not know. That just doesn't actually quite ring quite true, does it? I mean, when you sin, do you say, well, I didn't know that was sin. I am, I'm shocked. I'm so surprised. That's, that's, that anger is inappropriate. I had no idea. That word which I slammed my wife with, that was, that was unrighteous. I'm shocked. We don't talk that way, do we? We, when we sin, we know it, don't we? And you get that conviction immediately. It says, oh, that was so foolish. The Apostle Paul was a smart man, well-trained, well-equipped in the law before he came to trust in Christ, even better trained about the law and about Christ after he trusted Christ. He became an apostle. So when he says, for what I am doing, when he sins, I do not understand, he doesn't mean, I didn't know that was sin. I was uninformed by the law. No. If anyone knew the law, Paul knew the law. He knew it was sin. And what does he mean? That word knowledge or understanding can also mean something like acknowledge or condone or approve. And that is exactly what Paul means here. For what I am doing when I sin, I do not condone. 
I do not give it my stamp of approval. It's not right. It's sin. In fact, notice what else he says, for I am practicing uh, I am not practicing what I would like to do, and the very I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 16, and if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is God, the, the law is good. I agree with the law. What does the law say? When I sin, what does the law say to me? The law says condemnation. The law says I'm guilty. The law says I'm culpable. And Paul, when he sins, affirms, yes, I'm culpable. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 15, I don't give approval to it. I'm wrong. I'm culpable. I shouldn't have done what I've done. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. And I'm guilty because of it. It's not just that he is not practicing what he had liked to do. Verse 16 is particularly emphatic. I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. And because of that, when the law condemns me, we would say the law is good. The law is right. The law is right. The law has set a standard. The standard is right, and I am wrong. You want uh, you want proof of the condition of indwelling sin in the believer? <laughs> Just look at your life. Take your life, compare it to the righteous standard of God's law, and see where you stack up. Because the law is not wrong. The law is not immoral. The, the law shouldn't be done away with. The law is good. It's righteous. It's holy. And we are not good. We, we don't attain it on our own. We don't attain sanctification on our own. We don't attain salvation on our own. And so when the law says, you're guilty, it's good. Where does this stuff come from? Where, where does it come from? He answers that question in verse 16. What's the source of the believer's condition? Notice he concludes verse 17. So now. So now. Now I'm making a conclusion. What, where, where does this stuff come from? What, what's the source of it? What's, what's the place from which it originates? No longer am I the one doing it. It's not me. Not only does he say, no longer am I the one doing it, he's he's even more emphatic, not I, not me. Now he is not saying I'm not guilty, but he is saying there's something else resident within him that is captivating him and compelling him. What is it? It is sin, verse 17, which dwells in me. His problem is not that he is living in sin. Notice he uses the the picture of a household. So sin dwells in him. He's not saying there's a household and I am living in the household of sin. But he's saying there's a household in which I am in Christ and there is still sin living in that household. As one commentator has said, this is not the honored guest nor the paying tenant, but the squatter. Not legitimately there, but very difficult to eject. What's the source of Paul's problem? What's the source of your problem? What's the source of my problem? It's an illegal squatter remaining sin. It's a flesh that is still bent towards sin. It is, it is the unsanctified parts of our lives. Paul is not saying the problem is a deficient salvation. Paul is not saying, I'm really still in Adam. I know you think I'm in Christ, but I'm really still in Adam and I'm not in Christ. I'm, I'm still in Adam. He's not saying, I really do love my sin. No, he's affirming that he has a new desire and a new longing and he wants to obey Christ and he wants to do the right thing. But there's still something within him that compels him and pulls him and occasionally finds himself doing things. Now, now that is not to say, don't walk out of here and say, well, Terry said I'm going to sin, so let, let me engage in sin. That is not what I'm saying. Hate your sin. Rebel against your sin. Fight against your sin. But recognize, you will still sometimes sin. This was driven home to me many years ago when our children were very small. And... Um, 
one of the children who, Tom, you actually might know quite well, one of our children was coming to me with, to church with me one Sunday morning because Regine had to stay home with the other one who was sick. And so being a good dad, I did what all good, dad, good dads do on our way to church. When it's just me and mom's not around, we stop to get donuts. And I got donuts because I have a job on Sunday morning and I wanted to make sure that she was taken care of while she, while we were here and, and uh, make sure that she would have something to do. So I got her a bag of donut holes. Put her back in her car seat in the back seat. I get in the front seat, put the donut holes next to me. We start driving to church. Daddy, can I hold the bag? Oh, you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> um, yes, honey, but, but they're for church and you need to save them for church. Okay, but I just want to hold the bag. Okay, you can hold the bag. Huh? Give her the bag. Less than a mile later, I hear rustling. And I look in the rearview mirror and the bag is open. Honey, what are you doing? I'm just looking at them, Daddy. (laughs) I won't eat them. Okay, they're for church. Make sure you don't eat them. Quarter mile later, rustle, rustle, rustle. The hand is in the bag, right? May I have the bag back, please? Take the bag, put it on the front seat. What's that? That's remaining sin. And that's, that's your wrestling, right? Isn't it? That's my wrestling. That, that there's at the times an attraction to it. Not all the time. It's not every day. Not every moment of every day. There are, there are days and seasons when you walk with Christ and you long for Christ and you obey Christ and, and, and sin by and large is eradicated from your life. There's no significant patterns of sin and sin is, sin is by far something unusual. But there are times when sin does happen, right? What's going on? This is the sin that dwells in you. It is remaining sin. Let me just ask you a couple questions as we kind of wrap this passage together. Do you love the Word of God? Do you love the law of God? Do you say, I love this book. It's, it's, it's a perfect book and I'm imperfect and I need this book. And this book is going to expose me for what I am. But I love that exposure. I need that exposure. Secondly, do you hate your sin? Do you you look at your sin, those occasions of sin, or even those patterns of sin, and you say, I am sick of this. I hate this. This is not what I was saved to do, and this is not what I want to do. I want to be removed from this. I want to be transformed from this. I don't want to do this. Do you grieve and lament over your sin? I picked this word, the believer's lament, for a very particular reason, because that is exactly what it is. It's a lament. It's a grief. It's a sorrow. Do you grieve over your sin? Does it break you? Are you living with an awareness of your battle, fourthly, with sin? And you're, you're being intentional to not let sin reign. As soon as sin happens, you confess it. You go to the Lord, you go to the one you sinned against. You confess and you implement strategies to change and grow and become like Jesus Christ. Is that you? If that's you, friend, I want you to take comfort from this passage because that's a believer. That's what a believer does. An unbeliever doesn't do that. An unbeliever is not drawn to that. And if that's your, if that's the mark of your life, that you love the Word of God, that you, that you hate your sin, that you grieve over your sin, that you desire transformation from your sin, and you're working actively in that, that arena, that's, that's a sign that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But friend, if that's not you, if you answered no to those questions, then you have no reason to be comforted. Because, friend, you are still in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. You're under God's condemnation. You've not been set free. You're under God's wrath, and you deserve God's wrath, and you will get God's wrath unless you repent. And so, friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't love the Word of God, if you, if you love your sin more than you love Christ, and if you're... If you're not grieved by your sin, if you're not broken by your sin, if you're not working to be transformed from your sin into the likeness of Jesus Christ, friend, I am calling you. On the basis of the Word of God, I am commanding you and compelling you. You must repent. 
You must turn to Christ. You must embrace Him as your treasure. You must embrace Him as your Lord. And friend, when you embrace Him as your Lord, when you confess your sin, He will forgive your sin and remove the penalty of that sin from your life. And friend, He will also remove the power of sin from your life. So that you will become come to a place, not where you will always do what is right, but you will have a new ability to say no to sin. That's what Christ will do when He saves you. Friend, the spiritual life is a battle. It's a fight. It's a fight against sin. It's an ever-present fight or war against sin. We, we'd like to have instant sanctification. We'd like to say we don't have to fight against sin. We'd like to be fully righteous and perfect. But as long as we live life on this earth, we will always have a battle with sin. We do well to remember what A.W. Tozer wrote a generation ago. We want to forget that most of God's wonderful people in the early days of the church did not have peace of mind. They did not seek it. They knew that a soldier does not go into the battlefield to relax. He goes to fight. They accepted their position as on earth as soldiers in the army of God, fighting along with the Lord Jesus Christ in the terrible war against iniquity and sin. And it was not a war against people, but against sin and iniquity and the devil. Oh, my brothers, we are in a war. And no sin has not been fully eradicated. But yes, my friend, there is help for the believer that if you trust in him, he will remove the condemnation from you and give you power to live with him. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the condemnation that comes from it, and we thank you for the hope that comes from it. And so, Father, would we this week, as we we strive to walk with you and live for you and worship you, you, would you be transforming us? Would you be giving us increasing liberty from the indwelling sin that remains? Would you give us an increasing hatred of the sin that we struggle with? And would you give us increasing wisdom to fight against that sin so that we might walk in liberty and joy. And Father, we pray these things on the hopefulness that is to be found in Jesus Christ our Lord and according to His name. Amen.